Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for what we get to celebrate. And now we pray, Lord, that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Peace on earth. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> Peace on earth. Okay, guys, I got a joke for you. You ready? The, yeah, what do I heard someone say, oh, no. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> anyway, this genie came up to me and told me that I've got three wishes. So for my first, I asked for money, and he gives me money. How cool. For my second, I asked for peace on earth, and he gave me peace on earth. Way cool. For my third, I asked for peace in my family. I wanted family peace. Jeannie was confused and then concerned and said, Are you absolutely sure? And I said, Absolutely, I am. So he snapped his fingers, and I started fading away. Just a suggestion. If there's extra tension in your family during the holidays, you might look in a mirror before pointing any fingers, right? Are you a peacemaker or a provocateur? Now, there's quite a few pretty funny memes out there on this idea of peace on earth. I like this first one. This this angel floats down right out of heaven and announces to these guys, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And one of the guys says, obviously he's not from Washington. Come on, that's pretty funny, guys. Or this next one. Does anyone else see the irony in singing about peace on earth at a time when families get together? I wish that was a joke. Here's one that kind of dogs on us guys. Are you ready? These three wise women would have asked directions. They would have arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby, brought practical gifts, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and there would be peace on earth. Yeah, right. And then turnaround's fair play. Here's one that dogs on you ladies. Finally, peace on earth. Now, you've got to admit that's funny. Look at the little guy. <laughs> okay, sometimes you read things in the Bible that kind of sound like they contradict each other, don't you? And that's how it is with Jesus and this peace on earth stuff. First, you've got this angel that appears to these shepherds and says, I'm here to tell you guys the wildest, weirdest, craziest, best news ever, and not just for you guys, but for every man, every woman, every child, everywhere for all of time. He says, your Savior. Some of you guys didn't even know you needed saving. Your Messiah, the one I hope you've been waiting for. Your Lord, your Master. Some of you guys didn't even know you had one. In fact, once you discover who that baby really is, it's going to blow your mind. He's right over there, the angel says. And then this whole army of angels shows up, and they're praising God, and here's what they say. Glory to God in the highest. No kidding. And peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Or maybe better, peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. In any case, this babe is a... Bringer of peace of some sort, something that we desperately need. And then you just walk down exactly the same chapter, just 10 verses later. And there's a story about an incident that takes place 40 days later. There's this old guy, an old holy man by the name of Simeon, who Luke says, had received some kind of a promise from God that he would see God's Messiah before he died. And he's old. Well, Mary and Joseph have to go to the temple for this ritual purification. And apparently Simeon just lasers in on this baby, Jesus. 
And he takes Jesus and he praises God and he says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you've promised because I have seen your salvation which you have prepared for all people. Right here. He said, my arms. And then he says this, and this is weird. This child, this baby, is destined to call many in, cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. It's peace on earth. He's been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. Peace on earth. And he says, a sword will pierce your soul. Not exactly how I'd choreograph peace. So which is it? Which is he? Peace on earth, goodwill to men, or a divider destined by God to be a provocateur? And then Jesus himself muddies it up when he's out teaching about 30 years later. He says to those listening, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Is that why you think I'm here, really? Mm. In fact, in Greek, it's not just no, it's a heck no. Extremely strong negative. He says, I've come here to divide people against each other. And he's good at that, isn't he? He says, from now on, even your families are going to be split apart because of me. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. <laughs> you think these shutdowns and masks and vaccinations are polarizing? Children squabbles compared to the divisions that I will provoke, says Jesus. So which is it? Does Jesus actually offer peace on earth between men, between us? Well, if you are here last week, you might remember that I kind of challenged the way that most people read the promise that these angels made to these shepherds of peace on earth through Jesus. See, they're not really talking about peace between men. They were talking about peace between men and God. See, Jesus came here to offer a peace way bigger than peace between men. Because the squabbles that we have with each other and even the wars that we fight against each other are trivial compared to the war that we fight with God. Peace with God, he says, is way bigger than peace with men. But, in a strange, weird way, maybe peace with God is the only real path to peace with men. There can be no lasting peace between men, I think, that isn't built on a foundation of peace with God. Let me show you. Now, I want to skip back to the very first verse of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1. Luke, the writer, says this. He says, In those days, a guy named Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken throughout the entire Roman world. Now, Caesar Augustus, some historians think that he was one of the most effective leaders in history, an amazing guy. After Julius Caesar was murdered by some of the Roman senators, remember, et tu, Brute? Caesar Augustus worked his way to the top, and he became the first emperor of the Roman Empire. By the way, the month of July was named after Julius Caesar, and the month of August was named after Caesar Augustus. And this Caesar Augustus did a pretty amazing job. Basically, he doubled the size of the empire. He developed this amazing network of Roman roads. Some of the Roman roads are still there today, 2,000 years later. 
He stabilized the army, started a police force. He started a fire department for the city of Rome, which they would need later on when Nero became emperor, right? But Augustus is best known for maintaining order, stabilizing the empire, and starting the Pax Romana. Ever heard of the Pax Romana? The Peace of Rome. Now, they still fought, fought their wars out on the borders, but inside the empire, there was more peace than they had ever known. One of the Roman gods was named Janus. He was the god of new beginnings, which is probably why January was named after him. Well, there was a shrine to Janus in Rome. In times of war, they left the doors open. In times of peace, they shut the doors. Under Caesar Augustus, they were able to close the doors. The Pax Romana, peace of Rome. In fact, they built an altar to that piece about 10 years before Jesus was born. They called it the Ara Passus Auguste, the altar of Augustus, Augustine peace. Still standing, you can still see it. In fact, they called Augustus the savior of the whole world. That was one of his titles as the emperor, the savior of the whole world. He was not only a god in their eyes, he was the savior of the whole world. In fact, there's an inscription. You can't read it, but it's an inscription from about five years before Jesus. It's still there. It says, the birthday of the God has marked the beginning of good news for the whole world. Holy cow. Puny God, maybe. And good news for a select few, maybe. But if you look, you can see it. They called Augustus, this emperor, the bringer of peace. He was the good news of a savior who would bring peace to the world. In their eyes, he was a savior God. In reality, he was a pawn being used by the real God as a tiny part of a plan to bring the real savior of all men into the world. And into this world of Augustus the puny, these ethereal supernatural warriors of heaven, any one of whom could have crushed the whole of the Roman army without breaking a sweat. They issue their own proclamation. The angel says, I'm bringing you the actual good news. And not just for the Romans, but for every man, every woman, every child, everywhere for all of time. The Savior, the real Savior, the Messiah, the one that God promised centuries ago. The Lord, your real Lord, has been born today and he's right over there in Bethlehem. It's actually shaped like one of their imperial proclamations, except the angel was announcing the birth of a real Savior and the real Lord, not some puny wannabe. And to make sure that we get it, this whole army of ethereal supernatural warriors of heaven, any one of whom could have crushed any army from any time, without breaking a sweat. They appear out of nowhere and they say something like this, glory to God in the highest heaven. No kidding. And peace on earth. Peace on earth. A different kind of peace to those with whom God is pleased. The kind of peace you need most. The kind of peace I need most. The kind of peace that is a foundation of any other real peace that matters. Pax, Jesus, peace of Jesus. Do you have Pax, Jesus? And look how Augustus won his peace. He defeated the armies of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. 
He subjugated enemies in what we know as France, Spain, Serbia, Kosovo, Albania, Armenia, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Egypt. He built the most powerful standing army of, of his time. He built the Praetorian Guard, kind of like the secret police and his personal guard. That was the Pax Romana, peace through power, peace through strength, peace through fear. He literally canceled his enemies. Now compare how Jesus won his peace. Jesus defeated the most powerful enemies any of us face by dying in our place. That's Pax Jesus. The Creator God, the Almighty, Omnipotent God, defeated every single sin that imprisons any of us. He defeated Satan, the usurper, who rules this world for a time. Not with a sword, though I suspect one's coming. Instead with a cross and a resurrection. Augustus won his peace by killing his enemies. Jesus won his peace by making us his friends, even his kids, if we'll accept him. That's Pax Jesus. Now, we tend still to default to the strategies of Augustus. Maybe not through actual war, but close. When my kids were little, they would squabble. I could bring peace to their squabbling. I had the power of the belt. That's Pox dad. A boss can bring peace to employees who are squabbling. That's Pox paycheck. Some people have a gift of bringing peace because they're so daggone persuasive. They convince you that, they, that you want to do it their way. That's Pox persuasion. Others try to win the priest by silencing, <clears throat> canceling anybody who disagrees. Pox humiliation. Our poxes don't last. Jesus won our peace by taking our place, by taking on himself the punishment that we deserve and offering in exchange grace. And listen. The peace with God that we have through Jesus is the only real path to peace within and it's the only real path to peace with men. There's a little book that was powerfully important to me in my own struggle to embrace the grace of God. It's called Embracing the Love of God by James Bryan Smith. Now he's writing about how the love of God works, but I think it works the same for the peace of God. See, I think most Jesus followers don't like themselves too much. So we pretty much assume that God doesn't like us much either. I mean, if I know I'm a jerk, God has to know I'm a jerk too, right? Maybe at most God tolerates me while he's trying to fix me into something that he can like. And then I figure if I don't really like who I am and God doesn't really like who I am, I can't imagine that people would really like who I am. So I go through life wearing masks right? Trying to hard that, hide that dark stuff that I know that's down there, stuff that would cause people to push me away. Well, if you're anything like that, if you are where I have been, then James Bryan Smith kind of smashes you in the face. God doesn't tolerate you guys. God loves you right now as you are passionately. Do you believe that? 
God knows every single one of your flaws way better than you do. He knows your struggles, and he loves you so fiercely that he would have sent his son to die if it was only for you. Believe that? But what if, Smith says, what if we actually can begin to trust God? What if, what if we can actually begin to accept the fact that God actually does love us just as we are? Because we're never going to be as we wish we were. Philip Yancey puts it like this. He says, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing that you have ever done that makes God love you less. God's love is way more powerful than your unworthiness. And if you get that, maybe you can start to be, accept yourself, even to love yourself despite your flaws and your weaknesses and your failures, which you know are there. You can actually begin to love yourself, not in a bad way, but because you begin to see yourself through God's eyes. And then if you get that, you can actually start to love others around you who are broken and flawed and weak, just like you are. Works the same way, I think, with peace. A lot of us don't feel any peace with God, and we feel very little peace within, and as a result, we experience very little peace with men. We want it, we hunger for it, but it seems so elusive. And how many of you guys actually live out your peace with God through Jesus? Feel at peace with Him. Now we push grace away. And here it is, guys, when we struggle to accept grace, we also struggle to give grace. When we look around, we see His sin, her sin, and His weakness, and her failure and his immorality and her selfishness and his arrogance and her vile tongue. People are messed up. Because we can't embrace peace with God, we offer little peace to men and we experience so little peace within. Listen, guys, if you can embrace peace with God through Jesus, you have a path to peace within. And that opens a door to peace with other people who are broken and twisted and messed up just like you are. Which is what the church is all about. It's what the church family is all about. Peace with God leading to peace with each other. Peace with people. If you think about it, you look around, this is a weird, weird cluster of people who have no business being at peace with God or with each other. We do because of Jesus. You want some of that? They need to find it here. We need to embody it here. Guys, we are the ultimate counterculture. We need to show them a peace that they can't find anywhere else. The Apostle Paul put it like this. He says, all who've been united with Christ in baptism, you have put on Christ. It's kind of like putting on new clothes. And there is no longer Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are one. You are one in Christ Jesus. That's peace with men. Jews and Gentiles, they shared no peace in that world, except in the church. Slave and free, together in the church. Male and female, worlds apart in that culture. One in Christ. It's counterintuitive. It's still countercultural. It's still mind-blowing. What we have together in Jesus dwarfs any of the boxes that our world tries to put us in. 
In the church, there is no longer Republican or Democrat. In the church, there is no longer black or white. There are no longer millennials and boomers. There's not even vegetarians and bacon. What we share in Jesus is supposed to put into perspective all of those other littler things that divide us in this messed up world. Guys, I hate it when Jesus' followers are at war. Stop it. Over in another letter, Paul says, you guys used to be Jews and Gentiles. You used to despise each other. And you can substitute any of the other ways that we choose sides in our world. He says, in those days you were living apart from Christ, but you're not apart from Christ now. You were excluded from citizenship in God's kingdom. You're not that way now. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But he says, now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, now you've been brought near to Him through the blood of Jesus. And do you understand what that means, he says? For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. Peace to us. United Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in His own body on the cross, He broke down the walls of hostility that separate us. You get it? When Christ won our peace with God, He also tore down the walls that separate us. Listen, guys, when you are at war with a brother or a sister in Christ, you are at war with your God. So stop it. Paul says Jesus made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from all the groups we cluster into out there. Together as one body, Christ reconciled people as strangely different as we are to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. You buy that? Listen, guys, people need peace. We need peace inside. We need peace with our families. We need peace with our neighbors, with our colleagues. We need peace with God. Most of all, we need peace with God. Because without peace with God, there can be no lasting peace between men. And people need to find that kind of peace right here. That's what the church is for. To be a place where peace is found in a world where very little peace exists. Philip Yancey is one of my heroes. His book, What's So Amazing About Grace, is near the top of the list of the top ten books I've ever read. At his church, people would come to the front for communion and they'd tear a piece of bread from a common loaf and they drink from a common cup. And as they would tear the bread from the common loaf, the pastor would say these words, the body of Christ broken for you. And as they drink from the cup, the pastor would say, the blood of Christ shed for you. Mabel, he says, had been a prostitute. Fifty years before, she had sold her only child, her daughter, Her family had rejected her long before. Her pregnancy had eliminated her source of income, and she knew that she'd be a terrible mother. So she sold her baby to a couple in Michigan. She could never forgive herself, she said. Now she's standing at the communion rail with her hands outstretched, waiting to receive the gift of grace. Well, the body of Christ broken for you, Mabel. 
Next to her were Gus and Mildred. They were star players, Yancey says, in the only wedding ceremony ever performed among the church's seniors. They'd lost $150 a month in Social Security benefits by marrying rather than living together, but Gus insisted. He said, Mildred's the light of my life, and I don't care if I live in poverty the rest of my life as long as I live with her, with, uh, live with her by my side. Well, the blood of Christ shed for you, Gus, and for you, Mabel. Next came Adolphus. He was an angry young black man whose worst fears about the human race had been confirmed in Vietnam. Adolphus scared people away from their church. Once, Yancey said, in a class that he was teaching on Joshua, Adolphus raised his hand and he said, I wish I had an M16 right now because I'd kill all the white honkies in this room. An elder in the church took him aside afterwards and talked to him, insisting he'd take his medication before coming to services on Sunday. And the church put up with Adolphus because it knew that he didn't come merely out of anger, but out of hunger. If he missed the bus and no one offered him a ride, sometimes he walked five miles to church. The body of Christ was broken for you, Adolphus. Christina and Reiner was an elegant German couple employed by the University of Chicago. They both had PhDs. They were from the same pietist community in Germany. Their son had just left for a mission trip in India. He planned to live for a year in the worst slum of Calcutta. Christina and Reiner had always honored personal sacrifice, but this is their son. This is different. They feared for his health. They feared for his safety. Christina held her face in her hands, and tears dribbled through her fingers. Well, the blood of Christ shed for you, Christina, and for you, Reiner. And Sarah, a turban covering her bare head, scarred from where the doctors had removed a brain tumor. Michael, who stuttered so badly that he'd physically cringe whenever anybody addressed him. Maria, a wild, overweight Italian woman who'd just married for the fourth time. The blood of Christ, the body of Christ for you. And how in the world could this weird cluster of misfits find any peace within and any peace with each other? an ex-prostitute, an angry young black man with PTSD, pious academics, those with broken bodies? What could bring them together? What could give them the strength, not just to tolerate each other, but actually to love each other? What could give them any peace within and such a powerful, stunning peace between men? I can remember this church family, guys, being criticized online for allowing certain kinds of people to share the Lord's Supper with us. <laughs> when in reality, the only kind of people we allow at the Lord's table are broken, flawed, messed up people. The kinds of people who should despise each other. But what is there about Jesus that dwarfs any of those things that separate us? Guys, if you knew some of the stories of the people who are sitting near you, some of you do, and you're still here. How cool is that? There are people in this church family who've aborted their children and others who work in a pregnancy center. There are those in this room who have cheated on their husbands and wives, seated next to those husbands and wives. There are those in this room who've been addicted to porn and those who've been hurt by those addictions. There are those in this room who are alcoholics, seated next to those whose lives their sin has wounded. 
We have sex offenders and rape victims. We have those who have done jail time and those who have put them there. We have those who have killed and those who abhor killing of any kind. We have the rich, the poor. We have those with power and those who are powerless. We have the old and the young, the beautiful and the not so beautiful. We have doubters and those who have never for a moment questioned their faith in God. What a weird cluster of people we are who have no business being at peace with God or with each other in a place of peace because of Jesus. This is a sanctuary of peace through Jesus. This is a counterculture of peace. We're going to do the Lord's Supper a little bit differently this morning, guys. I'm going to ask you to come to the tables, pick up the elements, take it to your seat, and wait. We're going to take it together in just a couple of moments. Would you come, please? I'm going to ask you to say something that you've probably never said before during the Lord's Supper time. Instead of saying, my saying, the body of Christ broken for you, you're going to say in just a moment, the body of Christ broken for me. Okay? Because it is every single one of you. So let's say it together. The body of Christ broken for me. We're going to do the same thing, guys, because it's true. This is God's reality. We're going to say the blood of Christ shed for me. Are you ready? The blood of Christ shed for me. In the words of the Apostle Paul, now let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful.